Hello and welcome to Misal. My name is Zahed and I'm your host. On this podcast, I talk candidly with the most innovative minds working towards building a better startup economy in Pakistan. This week's episode of the Misal podcast features my conversation with Adam Daud. He's the founder and CEO of BeSecure, a one-click checkout solution for e-commerce businesses in Pakistan. In our conversation, we touch upon how BeSecure effectively addresses the payment needs of Pakistani e-commerce businesses, the many challenges and opportunities in the e-commerce space, and the macro-level landscape of the Pakistani e-commerce market. Let's listen in. Welcome to the Misal Podcast, Adam. How are you? I'm very well, Zahid. Thank you so much for having me. The last time I think we spoke was back in 2014. I think I contacted you about investing in Pakistani startups. You you are the one of the reasons that I am doing what I'm doing with TechShow. Uh, is because I was inspired by the article that you wrote about the Pakistani startups back then uh, mm-hmm. when absolutely no one was looking at it. That's very kind of you to say. So I wanted to, like, of course, have you on to, so that we can talk about uh, Be Secure. So why don't you tell uh, tell me something about Be Secure, what you have been up to, uh, and why you are building Be Secure. Be Secure is a one-click checkout and uh, payment system which helps local e-commerce builders basically make their e-commerce journey as smooth as possible. So, you know, I've been in the e-commerce industry since 2012 when we started Daraz. And it is, so from Daraz, I then went, I started one of my own e-commerce companies with my wife uh, called petpeople.pk. I then uh, joined kemu.pk. And from there, I went to yevo.com. And I can tell you, I never during that time had an easy experience with sort of payment gateways or even the checkout as well. It was always something that was very tough and never sort of very conversion centric as well. And even at Yevo, where, you know, we had complete control over our tech stack, focusing on the checkout is something we did right at the very beginning. But then, you know, investing time and resources was always very, very difficult because there were so many other fires to put out as well from sort of our uh, seller platform to our warehousing platform and everything like that. So Be Secure was basically came about because I wanted to try and fix those problems for as many e-commerce merchants as possible. And this was around the time the idea also came around because Bolt and Fast was sort of really starting to hype up at this stage. This was late 2019 that I had this sort of idea. And so in February, March 2020, we started building it. And yeah, the goal was, okay, how can we sort of look at the one-click checkout model, but really optimize it for Pakistan? Because one of the things I've sort of really learned over time is you can't just sort of copy paste something from the US or European market. You have to sort of optimize for Pakistan as well. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last sort of few months, few years as well. So yeah, it was basically built out of that to try and make the entire checkout and payment system as simple as possible for as many builders or merchants in Pakistan. From what I understand is Be Secure is basically like a one-click checkout uh, plugin, right? Like it works for WooCommerce or Shopify, etc. So was there nothing in the market before you started this or were there you know, other products, but they were not as good. So when we started in um, February, March 2020, at that time, there was no sort of one-click checkouts. Uh, I'm sure a few people had ideas of doing it then, but when we began, at least when we even did our beta launch, there was nothing in the market. And actually part of the problem was in Pakistan, the payment systems of the payment gateways at that time were so difficult for an e-commerce merchant to manage. You know, like some of the largest banks didn't even have a WooCommerce 
or Magento gateway. And Shopify was even much harder to get because Shopify generally makes it harder to basically set up a gateway anyway. Na? So, you know, for a lot of people initially just uh, thought we were a good idea because if we even created the plugins for all of these uh, platforms, that itself would be a major boom for the market. So now that you have this solution, like what's the adoption been like? It's actually been very, very good. Um, so the first few months, so even the first year was very tough because you see when you're building out a checkout, it's um, it's not as simple as building a payment gateway because a payment gateway is, to put it very simply, uh, there's a lot of security elements to it, but it's very simply uh, take payment details and then send a success or failure message. Uh, whereas with a checkout, it can get much more complex because a checkout is you're taking the person's sort of uh, key information. So your phone numbers, email address, uh, then you're looking for the delivery address, shipping address and so forth. Then if you want to do any discounting, so voucher discounts, bin code discounts or any of those elements that has to be built in as well. And then the finally the payment integration. So there's a lot more components to it and every platform. So whether it's WooCommerce, Shopify, Magento, it's sort of built very differently. And, you know, there's so many different uh, requirements from merchants or builders, as we call them as well. Some of them want uh, a certain feature, which is sort of completely unique to them, but it's uh, mandatory. Some of them really want to focus on abandoned carts. So, you know, there was a lot of feature building and this is something that took us a little bit of time to sort of get right. And even at the beginning, one of the difficult things was we actually had to rebuild our entire platform about four or five months after our first sort of beta launch as well, because we realized there was a lot of sort of little bugs coming in because of the way we set it up. So, you know, building a checkout is difficult because it is one of the core components of your e-commerce website. So it was something we knew early on that, you know, it was going to take a little bit of time. And we, we've sort of luckily gone through that. And now we're at the stage where most builders who come in about easily 95% of them, we can manage all their sort of feature requirements. If you don't mind sharing the numbers, what do the numbers look like? How many websites currently are using BeSecure? In the last month, we had about 250 active builders and we're getting in just shy of a thousand uh, gross orders a day. And we now have over a hundred thousand customers who have actually transacted through the platform. I know publicly you have not raised any money, but uh, is this something that you're gonna do in the, in the, in the future? We actually raise money uh, before we even got started. So we are part of the Z2C group. Okay. It's a sort of a media advertising group that really wanted to push forward into the technology space. And I, I sort of uh, came in and gave them the idea for be secure and the overall one-click checkout and so on. So it's part of our sort of e-commerce remit that we're building over there. Uh, they've also invested in companies such as Vali as well. So we've sort of, our first sort of round was raised through them and, and we're sort of considering how to take this forward in the future. When it comes to, uh, you know, building a product as complex as a checkout, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure you faced certain problems at certain stages. So what were some of the challenges that you faced? <laughs> so to be honest, from right from the very beginning, our, we've had so many challenges. Um, so like the very first gateway we were integrating. So uh, as soon as we sort of wrote the first line of code, I started reaching out to all the gateways, uh, the members I knew at the gateways. And 
just getting any one of them to sort of agree and make them explain our business model was sort of very tough. Uh, when we had just signed a contract with our first gateway, a uh, few months after that, uh, th they were basically asked by the state bank to sort of stop uh, giving their gateway services to other merchants as well. So, you know, there was a sort of major delay over there and we had to sort of uh, rejig everything again. Um, so there was a lot. So basically imagine all the challenges that a normal e-commerce merchant has onboarding a payment gateway. It was sort of maybe five to 10 times more difficult for us because, you know, we had to do the explanation as to, you know, we're not actually taking the money from any of our builders. We're actually tech, we're in a way, we are sort of a affiliate partner for you, a sales development team for you. We're going to help you bring on board more mer merchants and things like that. So, you know, it was a very sort of tough sell. And then we also had this sort of very, <laughs> we had this desire to make sure our checkout was phenomenal in terms of the customer journey. No? So then getting access to the right APIs and everything was very, very difficult. And honestly, I'll tell you like the first sort of six, seven months we were operating, our checkout journey was not amazing. It was not, it was very difficult. It was very cumbersome. And it was because we weren't getting access to the APIs that we wanted. So that was on one side. On the other side, you know, when you're then integrating with builders from WooCommerce to Shopify and everything like that, well, it, the each platform is so sort of unique and you have to try and sort of make everything meld together in our sort of platform. It was uh, something that took a lot of time for us to figure out. And we, as I mentioned just slightly earlier as well, you know, after about four or five months, we like had to redo our entire WooCommerce plugin. We had to rewrite everything from scratch because we realized the way we were sort of pulling in the data and sort of pushing it into our platform and so on was not the most optimal way. Our builders were facing issues. So we had to redo all of it. Are you a technical person or where, like, do you have someone who takes care of all the technical things? But are you like working with the team in-house, you know, outsourced? We have, I'm not technical per se. So I would say I'm very product driven. So I try and understand the product. I try and understand what the requirements are. And I put those sort of down. So like uh, before, uh, one of the first things I even did was sort of wireframe out the entire checkout, wireframed out the sort of merchant, the builder portal and everything like that and figured out, you know, what are the key features I needed and build out the roadmap from, you know, the very first, the minimum requirements for the MVP and then sort of every stage after that. So I'm more of the product guy uh, on our technical side. So we actually, uh, at the beginning, we were looking to outsource because I didn't want to bring in a CTO right at the very beginning. I felt that, you know, uh, given I can understand, I know a lot of what the product needs. I needed someone who could take the idea I had and sort of build it out. And so we approached a lot of software houses and the software house we sort of locked in was Next Generation Innovations, which was run by Farzal Dochi. And they, they are in effect a boutique software house. And what I love about it is the entire team, in effect, that's been sort of hired for me, they work for Be Secure and Be Secure only. They are in effect an extension of the Be Secure team, except Farzal and sort of one or two of the senior sort of members act as like the CTO and the senior sort of uh, architects and guide the entire team on how to do it, how to build the product. So while we were building out the product specs and the requirements, their team basically builds it out. And the team that we have over there, they really deeply understand our platform as well, which is very critical for us.
how do you envision a future? So since you are a product person, I'm pretty sure you have a lot of ideas. So how do you see yourself uh, building those ideas, the way things are going? What do you expect uh, would the product would be doing in the future? So we're at this amazing stage now where while the core product is built, what's happening now is we're getting a lot of sort of feedback from our builders and our business development team as to, you know, what is required by people in the market. So it's to the point where, you know, now even a lot of what we're building aren't even directly ideas from myself or my product team. It's coming directly from the market. And we then sort of are the product team sort of scopes them out. We then look at, you know, what are the most critical ones to sort of uh, focus on, which might have the biggest ROI impact for us as well. And who's even potentially asking for it. And then based on that, we basically pre prepare the requirements and uh, start building it out in one of the sprints we're doing. In general, how do you feel about e-commerce? The market is going to look like, how do you plan on navigating that? I, when I look at the e-commerce market, even today, it's still very, very small. I mean, so there are sort of discussions around the actual market size. Um, if you take the state bank numbers and uh, prepayment numbers and put a 90% COD cap on it, which I don't fully agree with right now, you get to a market size of roughly $4 billion uh, in Pakistan. Uh, if you put that 90% down to 80%, it's roughly 2 billion. So I can we can say that anywhere between 2 to 4 billion is the e-commerce market size. As a percentage of the total retail market, that is maybe in the 1% to 2%, again, depending on the kind of numbers you're really looking at. Now, the average e-commerce uh, penetration ratio to or e-commerce uh, market size to retail market is pre-pandemic, it was roughly 10 to 12%. Post-pandemic, it's probably going to be in the 15% plus range. I mean, you know, you we've, heard, we've all seen those articles where China at a certain point was 50% plus and so on. So I would say just because our numbers are, let's say, in the 1% to 2% range, you know, we're not anywhere even close to the average. So for the next sort of few years, maybe even 10 years, it's going to grow aggressively. And I mean, part of the reports that even you come out with in terms of investments going in, e-commerce and fintech are in effect the largest sort of sectors where investment is coming in. And so I feel it's going to grow. Now, whether Pakistan will end up having a very large e-commerce market size compared to total uh, retail, so something like uh, China or whether or even the UK or Korea, or whether it'll be lower, so maybe lower uh, double digits or so on. This is something we sort of have to figure out. And I think this is where uh, based on the sort of type of economy we are or our sort of personal shopping habits will come in more than anything else. But we that all of that will sort of still take place another five to ten years after today. So we still we still have a long path to grow, and whether we sort of stabilize at ten percent or twenty percent is something we have to look look at. But for now, it's still going to go up. Okay, I mean that's a, that's a lot of suburb that you're asking for, but okay. <laughs> This is actually one of the biggest challenges. So I've been in Pakistan in the tech sort of industry since 2012. And, you know, the way I look at it, we've gone through like three major cycles of sort of funding and growth and so on. And um, about three years ago, four years ago, I was actually talking to a friend and he, you know, he, he told me something that's sort of very uh, proficient is you're never too late to do something in Pakistan. 
So, you know, even now, if you really think about this, like which markets could you not come in and potentially take over? Like some markets will require a little bit more money than others. But let's say if you wanted to make a Daraz or an airlift competitor, if you had 20 to 30 million dollars, you could probably still do it. The only market that's probably not reachable right now is the ride hailing one. So Uber, Kareem, especially in the car segment. You know, so there's very few markets that will, that no one has a real uh, stronghold on right now. So, you know, it's, you're not too late. There's still opportunity for anyone to do any businesses. The amount of capital you require will vary. Would you compare Daraz to Amazon? Because I just feel like there is no comparison between those two because Amazon is very, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a very service oriented, customer focused. And I don't see that with Daraz. Would you compare those two or would you say that there is actually no Amazon kind of entity in Pakistan right now? Based on what you said, service oriented. So, you know, uh, if we say Amazon, meaning an e-commerce marketplace where 99.9% of the time when you order something, you will get what you want within, say, 24 to 48 hours max. Take a 72 if you're really pushing it. Yeah, at that time, at this moment in time, uh, that does not exist. But Having said that, I will give Daraz a few props as well because, you know, being having been in Daraz and then having run Kemu and then Yevo, which was a direct competitor to Daraz, you know, it is very, very tough. So, you know, if you look at it from Daraz's point of view or any large marketplace's point of view, everyone wants to deliver every order that comes in. No one's spending money on customer acquisition to then just say, ha I'm not going to deliver the product to you. I don't actually care about that. I just want to get the customer numbers in. No one's doing that. The problem is on the back end. So a lot of the sellers, they do not themselves have the infrastructure needed to ensure the delivery happens properly because they themselves don't have the inventory management systems. I mean, one of the examples I always used to give was for uh, like, you know, when you when I was a kid, we used to go out eat shopping in Tariq Road and so on. You know, whenever you went shopping to any shop, if you saw something you liked, but they didn't have the right size or the right color, the shopkeeper would never say we don't have it. Or I don't remember that at all. What would always happen? And then there's no warehouse because what I then realized much, much later was, you know, they're actually sending their kids to go to all the other stores to see if anyone else has it and bring it back. So no one wants to lose a sale. Now, within, if you do that with an e-commerce marketplace, it's not really possible because you are going to lose that customer. And wait, this is where companies like Daraz and what we tried to do at Yevo as well. You know, you have to instruct very strong seller based policies. So if a seller makes a mistake, which is going to happen, you do something about it. The first mistake, maybe you can forgive, but the second, third, fourth, or uh, the number of mistakes over a certain period of time, you have to then sort of stop that seller from ruining your customers. And you have to have very strong sort of dispute resolution policies and customer service policies in place to ensure when something goes bad, you proactively fix it. Because, and now the problem is none of that is sexy. It's sexy to make an ad. It's sexy to run a marketing campaign. It's not sexy to make sure your customer service teams picks up the call within 30 seconds of a customer calling day after day after day after day.
you see so it's you have to be very process oriented you have to be very focused on those small numbers which actually matter like for example how long does it take for a seller to dispatch your order like literally to how many hours to how many minutes none of that is sexy and this is where you know you have to focus on the process because if you want to scale if you have bad processes you're just going to fail very fast marketplaces always have this issue right like where the you know well, my experience with marketplaces like mostly uh with ebay right e- ebay in the sense that like i'm buying from someone else uh on amazon i am not dealing with the indiv- individual entity i am dealing with amazon so my order doesn't come to me in a certain time or is defected i send it back right get it i send it back to amazon i am only dealing with amazon peche to hai it's of course you know there there are people selling the stuff and there you know amazon fba is a big deal amazon initially was a first party retail you know they bought the books and sold it themselves but now if you look at their financial statements i i'm not going to quote the numbers here because i don't sort of remember them off the top of my head but a large majority of the sales are from their third party marketplace so other sellers are selling it and we what's critical is we all think it's coming from amazon even if you know it's not coming from amazon we trust in amazon to make sure things go right we ins- we know that they will take care of things and you know that's very critical i mean look at ali express pakistani shop a lot at ali express and they know ali express isn't selling it themselves hell they're even doing pre payment with ali express because ali express obviously doesn't do cash on delivery from china to pakistan but we are willing to trust them because we know if something goes wrong we can complain that isn't there in any of the pakistani sort of marketplaces and that is very critical and we i think a big part of it is doing good customer service is boring because you have to do the same mundane things day after day after day you have to optimize the process day after day after day and if you are not willing to put in the hours and uh, time it takes to do that you're not going to do very well cash on delivery seems to be a culprit here so what if hypothetically speaking tomorrow cash on delivery is like you know sunset just doesn't exist uh daraz says you know what uh we'll give you 20% discount use your card no cash on delivery what do you think will happen a large part of the market will go away so after we did the e-commerce awards uh, this was in 20 early 2021 we, we did a survey so we had about uh, 93 unique phone numbers basically vote in the e-commerce awards and we sent all of those uh, unique phone numbers and sms asking them to complete a survey roughly 15000 people completed that survey so these are generally people who've obviously done some kind of e-commerce shopping or for the most part um i think it was 63 to 70% of people said they did not they used cash on delivery as their primary means of payment and um they basically you know they and the major reason they use cash on delivery uh 50% of it was because they don't trust uh, some element some people don't trust the uh, uh, online payment gateway some people don't trust the seller some people don't trust the logistics companies or they've had they know someone or they themselves have had a bad experience paying online 
So that was roughly 50% of the people who said that's why they choose it. But then we asked them a, a third question as well. We asked them, if you were to shop at an e-commerce company five times and in those sort of five times, the order was delivered to you perfectly and within two or three days, how many of you would then use prepayment for your next order? And I think about 60% of people said they would prefer pay, uh, prepayment. And this is something I noticed myself at Yevo because what we did, one of the exercises we did because our prepayments were growing very rapidly in 2018 or so. We then sort of, I asked my team to sort of do an exercise, take a cohort of customers over six to nine months, uh, filter out all the customers who basically had a complaint. So whether it be refund or anything, any sort of complaint, filter them out. Then look at the customers who had placed their very first order as cash on delivery. And then check by the time they placed their fifth order, how many of them had converted to prepayment. And we found that when we had filtered out all the customers who had never made a complaint or anything, something like 70% of customers by the fifth order had moved into prepayments because at the end of the day, it is easy. And so, you know, and we did that exercise because, you know, people always used to say people don't trust prepayments. So we wanted to see, you know, if you ended up trusting a store, would you actually convert? And we found that was true. So the key is how do you build trust between your customer and yourself, you as an e-commerce marketplace or e-commerce store or anything like that? So that is very, very critical. And that is something that does not happen quickly. So as long as that can be built, there's a huge undertaking that the market can have. If you think about it, then what's the population that has like a debit card or credit card? It's not that high, I'm pretty sure. It's, it's, it has to be very low. Um, so again, there's a lot of uh, duplicates in this, but roughly I think it was 20 plus million debit cards. I think if I remember correctly, six to eight million credit cards. And again, this is not okay. unique. Unique would probably be in the 10 million range. That's not that many credit cards. So it's it's will be difficult to basically if cash and delivery is like, you know, uh, no longer accepted in Pakistan, like a lot of businesses will just have to shut down because <laughs> there are not enough credit cards in circulation to keep the orders coming. You have other payment methods yeah, as well, like Sorry. Uh, mobile wallets such as Jazz Cash, Easy Pesa. Uh, bank transfer seems to be doing a little bit better. And I think Rast will be coming out with their P to M or peer to merchant payment system, maybe anytime in the next year or so. So I think there is sort of opportunity, but again, when the customer has a choice between prepayment of any kind and cash on delivery, if they do not trust the e-commerce store, they're going to go with the cash on delivery market. And the surprising thing is cash on delivery, I personally feel is actually less safe. Because at least I know when I pay with a credit card, if something goes wrong, I can always call up the bank and reverse my charges. Whereas with cash on delivery, if I take the product and the seller is not trustworthy, just getting the money back from the merchant can be a huge headache. I mean, when you when you talk about um, trust, so I feel like if the trust is issued, like if let's just say tomorrow Amazon comes to Pakistan and start operation, starts operation and Amazon um, being Amazon, I, I don't know if they will accept cash and delivery or not. But let's just say they don't accept cash and delivery. Do you think that is what it's going to take for mass adoption of like, you know, 
people, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who are qualified for a debit card or for qualified for a credit card, mm. but they have never seen the need to apply for one, right? So do you think they would start applying for it? And as a result, there will be a lot more activity because at the end of the day, I'm looking at it like big picture, right? Big picture, the more of this economy, all these transactions are, have a paper trail, the better for Pakistan in general, right? Like you're talking about taxes, you're talking about a lot of other things that start happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a very tough question. But um, so I'll say if Amazon decided to come in and they said no cash on delivery, A, I think there would be a huge amount of trust, especially amongst the middle class and above who know of Amazon. Uh, so they would be willing to do it. Then accessibility becomes a major question. Now, I think one of the key things Amazon would have to do is bring in those alternative payment methods, Jazz Cash, Easy Pesa, Bank Transfer, and all of those things. Now, because, see, one of the key problems is, I mean, you've probably seen this a lot on Twitter anyway, na? opening a bank account is very difficult in Pakistan. Opening, a, getting a credit card is also a major challenge also. You see, I mean, forget credit card, just getting a debit card is very difficult. And... Um, you know, I, I would say they would have an element of trust, but it, it sort of comes back to the financial sector as well. Now, how easy is it to sort of push debit cards and credit cards? It, it's not very easy to set that up yourself, to open it. Um, the very lucky few who, you know, have the resources or who the sales manager are always sort of coming to their office and saying, no, no, we'll do all the paperwork, we'll sign it for you. It's easy for them, but that's, you know, 0.01% of the population. So for everyone else, it's going to be difficult. So this is where Jazz Cash, Easy Pesa makes more sense. However, there is a lot of work happening in this. I mean, look at Zindagi, look at Naya Pay, look at uh, Sada Pay, all of these companies coming in. Their process is seem to be much, much simpler, their onboarding process. So there could be major change. And I think one of the key things will be Pakistan, if it's built on cards, it's not going to be built on credit cards. It will end up being built on debit cards. What would you say is like the e-commerce, uh, because I know you had the e-commerce awards, right? Uh, so you got like a peek into a lot of these companies doing different things and how customers feel about e-commerce in Pakistan. What is like one thing that you feel that that should change in the next couple of years uh, for things to you know get better and better every single year? The most critical thing is, and we've touched on this already, is we be proactive with your customers. Do the boring things that, and make sure they scale properly. You know, making an ad or running ads is fun. Making sure your customer service team answers calls properly, handles the problems immediately. That is, it is generally not fun or very few people would consider it fun. Now, those are the things that really end up mattering. So as long as, and you know, they are small sort of cottage e-commerce companies that do really, really well because they're focused on a very small group of customers or the founder themselves are in effect doing their customer service themselves, whether it be through WhatsApp or um, uh, Facebook Messenger or anything like that. Um, and that generally makes it successful. But, you know, scaling that. So that's easy to do when you're doing 10, maybe even 100 orders a day assuming you don't have a very high complaint ratio. But as soon as you start scaling to thousands of orders a day, you have to build a team around it. And then when you build a team, as the your processes which will determine your success. Your culture is also very obviously very critical, but how you process every single thing is critical. 
because let's be honest, Amazon, while its culture may be phenomenal as well, if they didn't have the right processes or the millions of complaints they probably have coming in any given week or month would not be processed very quickly. So it's very critical that you focus on the process. Customer service when it comes to Amazon, it's uh, it's just crazy because uh, just like a couple of months ago, I had my I had like three, four items delivered to my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, accidentally, like the person just got confused, the delivery driver, it he dropped off the package at my neighbor's house. So when I got home, it said that it was delivered, right? So I didn't see it on my door. And like being the, you know, uh, idiot I am, I'm like, I freaked out. I'm like, okay, uh, I did not get my order. Uh, I actually needed the whatever it was coming in, I was needed, needed the product uh, right away. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to call Amazon. I have never called Amazon. I have been shopping on Amazon since 2004 or five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I called them within 30 seconds, within 30 seconds, she was like, uh, well, I'll, I'll get you the refund. That's it. End of call. Like the, she did not waste more time with me. She looked at the fact that I've been a customer for the past 15 years, right? She saw that I'm probably spending like, I don't know, five or $6,000 a year on Amazon. And she, she didn't want to argue with me. Like she didn't want to like say, hey, you know, can you wait like half an hour? Like, you know, are you a child? Are you a baby? Can you wait? And I, I should have waited because that's what happened. Uh, it, in a couple of hours later, I got the product. But the fact that within 30 seconds of me telling her that, hey, I didn't get my order because and I received this message that was delivered, um, she, she didn't argue with me. She just gave me a full refund on four different products. It was just four different products. So, so that is very difficult to beat. Now, let's break down that process a little bit because I have had a very similar experience with Amazon. So I ordered one of those, you know, swiveling TV stands. And I I was delivered a fishing rod because, you know, and I knew just by looking at the packaging, this isn't a TV stand. And we, uh, for me, it was a little difficult to find their number. But when I, when I got to call them, it was my refund was processed immediately. But now let's go through the process. So A, you get in touch with Amazon, which everyone will do when people understand issues can happen. There's no problem there. The major thing was the customer service rep, A, she had all the information in front of her. And not only that, she was empowered to make a decision. That is very critical. Most companies do not empower their frontline staff. Now, this is something that's very critical. Now, there could obviously be certain bans. So, for example, if your order was less than $100, they probably give the frontline staff the ability to do it. If it's above maybe $1,000, they might have to bring in a manager or some sort. You know, it, it makes sense to do that, but they had empowered their frontline staff. And another key thing, and this is where then the technology comes in. Not only did she have the information, when she pressed that refund button, Someone in the back end did not have to go into the payment gateway to also process the refund. That button was connected directly to the payment gateway. You see, so there was no sort of middle, like middlemen who were then doing processing. And this is one of the key challenges that's there as well, because I remember in Pakistan, there were like two gateways that I had at Yevo, where for a refund to be processed, even if my customer service team had said, okay, process the refund, they had to print out a receipt which I had to sign and phys- physically mail to the office of the payment gateway, and then they would do the refund. <laughs> and just getting them, and you know, 
can you imagine so if there's a holiday it's like going to take 5 days for the uh, the mail to even reach them so you know getting them to just even agree to the fact that listen i we will sign it we will send you a scan process the refund and we will give you the airway bill number of the um, logistics company so you know you're going to get it but process the refund before you get the physical copy now what we had always wanted was an api here when i press a button on my platform i will hit your platform and press the api button rather than have people on my side and people on your side doing the manual work so you, you you see like it's a it's empowering your frontline staff but then you need the technology to support you and we the critical thing you also said she could see your profile and not she probably didn't even see every order you've done that would be too much work amazon probably gives you a customer score so if your customer score is above let's say the 90% threshold they don't question it they'll just refund it you see it's it's that simple and we it takes time you build algorithms you then optimize the algorithms and this is what we did for our sellers uh, sellers as well at yevo we we gave a ranking to every seller based on multiple variables one was how many complaints our customers getting how quickly are they dispatching how many uh, times are they we even had a variable for how many times they log into their portal because if they're logging in multiple times a day then we know they're active whereas if they log in every 3 days we know they're not active so everything's going to work slowly so you just set a score and you so you see there's so much work to do yeah so there is a reason uh, you know the the vcs are funding b2b e-commerce a lot more than the b2c e-commerce because b2c e-commerce is painful it it is a difficult problem to solve whereas b2b is not that difficult problem to solve like you can still have the credit terms and all those things i mean i'm i'm not saying it's easy but i'm saying it's not as difficult uh as b2c no you're completely right and it makes a lot of sense because there's a major lack of infrastructure in our b2b markets as well so we going back to the tarik road example where you know no store in tarik road would again i'm talking in the 90s and early 2000s no store would have an inventory management system even so i'll uh, give an example from just a few years ago one of the largest fashion brands in pakistan whose name everyone will know they had some of the most expensive erp systems you know we're talking microsoft dynamics oracle sap type level erp system but their erp system there were was not connected to their e-commerce store so what is the point if you have like a really expensive erp system for your outlets you have let's say magento or shopify running for e-commerce but you're not syncing the inventory what is the point so you know even at that level at the highest level there were still issues so at the bottom level you can imagine how bad it is thank you thank you for that insightful conversation it uh, was lovely talking to you thank you for being on the misal podcast yeah no, thank you so much for having me zahid i really I've, i've had a great conversation it was a lot of fun thank you thanks for listening to the misal podcast i hope you enjoyed the podcast and will thank me by writing a review or sharing it on social media make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode thanks again see you soon